You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. You know, there could be a bull shark in that lake. And we're going to find out today that there is a few lakes around the world where there are bull sharks living and surviving for many years. What can they teach us? several physiological processes inside their organs to help maintain an appropriate salt water balance or osmoregulation. And there's four ways in which a bull shark does this. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. I've been excited for this one. It's been on the books, you know, obviously when we look at July, but talking bull shark today, it's it's a species I've I've been really wanting to know more about. Let's just say that. Chris, you blew my mind with some of the uh, facts and videos and things that you sent me earlier this week, because I must admit, I was a little slow to the bull shark party. Mm. I had no idea that the bull shark can be found where salt water meets fresh water, mm-hmm. and that they're the only shark species that can basically tolerate fresh water, even live there, which we're going to yeah. talk about. Yeah. So diving into that this week has been incredible, super eye-opening for me. Uh, I just had no idea some of the places bull sharks can be found Mm -hmm. in brackish waters and freshwater rivers and just kind of pulling apart some of the facts because the bull shark, even its name, makes people think it's aggressive and, um, you know, this this man-eating shark and... We're going to put to rest a lot of these myths and really explore their physiology and their behavior. The bull shark is just an incredible species of shark. A lot of fun, a lot of fun facts. Uh, And yeah, just figuring out how they can live in two different locations and be the only shark that does this for the most part. And because of their ability to do this, we're going to even talk about things like what happens when bull sharks meet up with crocodiles and Hippos. hippos. Ooh, <laughs> yes. ooh, 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 ooh. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so it was. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank goodness. And I know, Chris, we can count on you too in your uh, shark attack statistics, and once again busting the myths and just realizing that it's extremely rare for sharks to attack humans, and even more rare for there actually to be human fatalities uh, from a shark bite. But it is summertime, and we do hear about them. So I know you'll help us go through and like look at all those numbers and uh, and basically Cliff Notes learn that we should be more scared of uh, being petting a cow. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. More people are killed by cows three times. <laughs> Or lightning, uh, yeah. or yeah. No, yeah, it was it was uh, cows kill just in the U.S. like twenty five or to twenty six people per year uh, versus uh, on average ten people uh, per year worldwide are killed by sharks. But I do have the statistics because the bull shark is painted as this man killer. You know, right? Yeah. Well, and I well, yes, Chris, and I was reading too that uh, they were bull sharks were blamed for attacks in 1916 mm-hmm. where a lot of people died in a short amount of time in the, I think the estuaries of New Jersey. Yeah. Am I yep, correct? Yep, yep. Yep. And potentially the inspiration for Peter Benchley's book Jaws, which mm-hmm. then turned into this, the Steven Spielberg blockbuster uh, Jaws, which then I think created all this fear Hysteria, and yeah. still, still to this day, 
uh, people just are often fearful when uh, there's a lot more things they should be worried well, about. Well, it's ingrained and- in us. I mean, for us as kids watching that movie, I mean, you know, part of the statistics, I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but, you know, a young woman was killed from my town here in New Zealand. And it's rare for somebody to die in New Zealand. And just last year, you know, she was killed by a great white uh, about an hour from me. And all my old stomping grounds up and down the California coast, uh, every year, one or two people get picked off. But you're talking, there's millions of people swimming in the ocean. You know, there's sharks all around us all the time. And again, it it is always, you know, mistaken ID. But I think what you get at with bull sharks, because it is our innate fear, you know, that's our survival mechanism that's in our reptilian brain from way back when, when we evolved. When you find them in freshwater rivers and lakes, it's a little, you know, that fear as a kid, always swimming, you know, in a lake like, oh, the shark's going to get me. Well, you know, there could be a bull shark in that lake. And we're going to find out today that there is a few lakes around the world where there are bull sharks living and surviving for many years. Yeah, it was, it's it's quite fascinating. It's going to be a yeah, lot of yeah. it's going it's it's going to there's some mind blowing facts there. I do know that I was just swimming in Lake Michigan not too long ago, and there are no there are no sharks and no salt in that Great Lake, which is well, it's a little too uh, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but still uh, a lot of fun this week uh, learning about bull sharks mm-hmm. and I uh, get to dork yeah. out about salinity and osmolarity, yeah. all sorts of fun uh, fun stuff to do with salt and salt water and fresh water. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you missed it last week, big announcement for Angie and I. We have joined the Airwave Network. It's a a big move for us where we are uh, grouped together with some other top history podcasts, uh, the Daily Meditation podcast. I love listening to the Pirate History podcast. No joke. I mean, they're not paying me to say this. I just am being honest. Like Joining this network, I was really excited. and I'm a history nerd on the side when Whenever I, I have a few minutes, I, I put, you know, I'm obviously listening to other podcasts and that one I absolutely love, uh, but it, it, it's a big move for us because we are joining some other great science podcasts, history, uh, education podcasts, because it allows us to grow and get our conservation message out there. And then as you notice, there are ads now placed within our podcast. It was something we've resisted for many, many years, but the growth is there. The podcast is just all of you around the world listening. Thank you. It means the world to Angie and I. But Angie and I are pledged that we are donating at least 25% of all of our ad revenue, You know, especially once we start making some some decent amount. Yeah, Chris, we actually had to, we had to make money yeah. first. But <laughs> we're yeah. making some, but not, you know, we're not making you know, mega bucks yet, but at uh, least, you know, at yeah, minimum 25% yeah. and uh, most of our ad revenue is going to go to uh, the conservation organizations we cover each and every week because, you know, we really believe in what they're doing. They need money. These animals need money. So we're putting money where our mouths are, you know, as we talk and preach and do these things, Plastic Free July, all these things that we talk about you and I practice and do. So so thank you for the support. And I have to give a big shout out this week to April joining us on Patreon. Thank you, April. Uh, we should be having a live soon. I will get with my PA now, <laughs> my partner, and I'll tell her to get that scheduled on the books uh, where Angie and I will come on and do a monthly live where we can talk to you guys. And if you have any questions about the network or species we should be covering, hop on to Patreon. Uh, again, minimum, uh, you know, 
cup of coffee a month and that supports us. And again, that, that revenue goes to conservation too. So thank you. And don't forget, you can always subscribe, rate and review uh, with us on iTunes and make sure and follow us on all of your favorite streaming devices as well. Now, Angie, bull sharks, this is just a prototypical shark. When you think of sharks, besides great whites, I mean, that's that's very iconic. Yeah. Bull sharks, just when you look at the shark, it's bull shark. It look, exactly. Yeah. I mean, bull sharks are going to be gray on the upper half of their body and then pale white in color on their underbelly. A lot of that counter shading that we see in our marine animals. Uh, and then their head is going to be a little bit different uh, as far as some of the other tiger sharks and great white sharks is. They have a very broad, rounded snout, and it's, it's shorter, I feel like, than um, some of the other species of iconic sharks, uh, and small eyes. So supposedly it's this more blunted or rounder nose or snout uh, that gives it its name bull shark plus its aggressive behavior. But it's a beautiful shark, and so I highly recommend uh, you take a look at our show notes or Google an image or watch a YouTube video uh, because it just it, it's a beautiful, beautiful, big fish. Yeah, big. Exactly. A lot bigger than I, I really thought. The ma- Now, we have sexual dimorphism in sharks. So, uh, you know, at the end of this episode, I'll, I'll list off the other ones we've done. Great whites, tigers, all of them, where the females are much bigger than the males. Yes. I love to see this because we don't see it that often in our mammals that we cover. So yeah, the female is is definitely larger than the male, which always has me wondering why. And I, I don't think the evolutionary biologists have the answer to that. But I'm wondering if a lot of it has to do with their reproduction uh, because bull shark reproduction is super fun. Uh, they do give live birth and we'll talk a lot about that later on in the podcast. And so I'm just wondering if maybe the large size is important for when they are gestating because they have a very long gestation period that will really shock you uh, when we get to that part. So maybe that's why, yeah. uh, but I'm not yeah. sure. Uh, or the, the, make sure the males don't eat her. I mean, you know, maybe small females got eaten. I, I don't know because there's some cannibalism in sharks. There now, is. It's not definitely. super often, but it does happen. So who knows? But yeah, the females can grow to 11 feet or over almost three and a half meters. Like... I did not think bull sharks were that big. No, it is like long. Yeah, if you, it, yeah. I always love the 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 cartoon pictures of the shark, like the bull shark with a scuba mm-hmm. diver above it, and right, the bull shark's much longer than the scuba diver. It's a big shark. <laughs> yeah. Well, and seven feet for the males, sure. like that's long, bigger than me, over two meters. So very long, and then weigh anywhere from two to five hundred pounds or 100 to 225 kilograms so they are they're substantial size shark I, I, bigger than i thought because i i haven't seen bull sharks in the wild and i'll talk about some places where you can see them in, in aquariums i just don't i just never thought they were as big as a tiger shark but apparently they are yeah and but it is all about location 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 and size because the adult size does depend on which geographic region they're found in. So North American bull sharks are bigger than those located more in the tropics, uh, like Costa Rica, Nicaragua, the Caribbean area. And to put numbers to that, for example, female bull sharks in North America can be average about nine, nine and a half feet. Whereas females found like more in the Costa Rican area are only eight, a little around eight feet. So mm-hmm. it probably mm-hmm. depends on what they're eating and uh, 
and the region that they're in. Well, that brings up a good point with range. You know, you said coastal waters. They uh, they prefer temperatures above 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Who doesn't? Tw- I know, I know. Or <laughs> 20 degrees Celsius. So off California, when I grew up, where I grew up, you know, we had great whites there, but we, we, we didn't have bull sharks. You'd have to go down Mexico. Further south. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Baja down, you know, and then the, the north half. Uh, was that the northwestern portion of South America, so Ecuador, Peru, those regions. Now, all around Brazil, up the Amazon River, like Angie said, all throughout the Caribbean, but they don't like deep water. So they they can, or they have been found close to 500 feet deep or 150 meters, but typically do not go under 100 feet or 30 meters. So pretty coastal. Then you go coast to Africa, you know, uh, southern coasts of, of Asia, all throughout Indonesia, most of Australia, except the southern portion. And again, all the Pacific uh, Pacifica Islands just north of me, but not found in New Zealand or have they, but typically not found off New Zealand. So uh, I'll leave that hanging for later. Well, yeah, Chris, I think we need to back up the bus a little bit because yeah. oh, you we mentioned because you mentioned you kind of just tossed in there up the Amazon. I know. <laughs> you can't do Amazon, that. Though. You can't when I'm picturing a map and I'm picturing all these like coastal tropical air oceans and uh regions and then up the Amazon, I'm like I think we I think <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't compute. We need to to expand on that and so yeah. The bull shark's habitat is definitely... Well, I got the Zambezi River, too. I'll throw that in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a lot more. And so I, uh, But I think the key point is that the bull shark basically is often found where saltwater meets freshwater in these mm-hmm. estuaries. And that we'll talk about it a lot in reproduction, but bull sharks tend to give birth in these estuaries. Yes. And, they're, and that's yes. where their nursery is for their young. And yeah. so the youngs hang out there until the temperatures drop seasonally, and then they'll move to more to more salty ocean environments. So okay, can I can I else can I can I add another one? Oh yes, a lot, a lot closer to home. Yes, <laughs> that that and, and again we'll cover this. I have a whole section on the freshwater, but the Mississippi River. Yes, up the Mississippi River as far as Illinois. Yes, Alton, so. Illinois, to be exact. My Midwest. <laughs> I had to get the city because I'm like I'm from the Midwest. I spent a lot of time yes. in Michigan, Chicago. Yeah. Yes, I will never look at the Mississippi River the same. I'm, I, yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I'm always fascinated when I drive over it, like how big it is and stuff. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes, that is for those of you that are not from um, the United States or aren't as familiar with the geography of North America. Uh, coming up from the Gulf of Mexico is where the Mississippi River dumps into, but it runs very, very far north to the northern mm-hmm. regions of <laughs> into the U.S. and Illinois is way up there uh, uh, near the Great Lakes, near my home. And yes, this bull shark was found 700 miles or 1,100 kilometers from the ocean. Yes. Up in Mississippi. <laughs> so for all of our listeners living on the Mississippi or near the Mississippi, yes, there their chances are bull sharks, uh, maybe not right then, right there, but we'll be traveling. Yeah, I think it's rare to go that high, but definitely, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. a lot more, a lot further south. But yeah, so these bull sharks love coast, subtropical coastal waters, and they occur in a number of river, river systems and some freshwater lakes, Mississippi. Amazon River, uh, they've been found 3,700 kilometers or 
over 2,000 miles up the Amazon River in Peru. Yeah. <laughs> so Peru. If, if you can visualize that map, you know, where uh, the... Peru's Am- on the west side of South exactly, America. Exactly. And the Amazon dumps on the a, east side. Yeah. East side. This is a shark that has swam all the way across South America, pretty much. Yes. Uh, there's thought yeah. to be more than 500 bull sharks living in the Brisbane River. Yes. Uh, Australia was next. Mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. And also in Lake Nicaragua. Yes, yes. I will. I'm gonna. I've got a story in Queensland. The Ganges. I'm not done. Yeah, the Ganges. Oh yeah. The, yep, yep, uh, yep. Uh, the, is it the the Brahma Putra? I'm probably not saying that right. Um, I mean, well, yeah. I've got a story. I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna save it. Leave people hanging. There's a crazy story in Australia, and our Aussie, our Aussie fr- listeners probably know uh, of it. Where yeah, or there there are some bull sharks, but we'll just leave it there because we're going to talk about how they do that and how they survive. But yeah, so I, I'm going to get to the shark attacks because when you have bull sharks in the Ganges River, Zambezi River, the Mississippi River, the Amazon River, where there's oh the humans, Ohio River, yeah, there's humans swimming, I fishing, mean- doing everything. And there's not that many shark attacks from bull sharks. It's ridiculous that they're they're painting the Tigris River. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I just got to keep going. The St. Lucia Estuary in South Africa. That's where they yeah, meet the hippos. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Yeah, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. So why care then? Like because it's so fascinating, Chris. I know. I have been blowing people's minds left and right this week when they're like, "Oh, what species are you doing?" Including my own husband. He was even like his jaw was a little bit dropped because this, you know, Chris and I are not uh shark experts by any stretch of our imaginations. We typically deal with ma- mammals, but I will say whenever you and I get out of our comfort zone like last week when we did mantis shrimp doing an invertebrate and this week doing um, an elasmo branch of a fish, a shark. Uh, I always feel like I learn so much more. And then I'm just like, I'm like a little teenager, like super giddy, like telling everybody, did you know this? Did you know that? And and I feel like a lot of people don't know this about bull sharks. But I, once again, it might just be my, you know, my own little bubble that I live in. But uh, so. No, I don't think people do. I don't think they realize. So they why realize I care that. about them? Because, well, they're one of the only, you know, there's, oh, yeah. they're not many fish do this. And the bull shark is not necessarily alone with its freshwater tolerance. Um, they say that there's about 43 species of elasmo branch uh, and 10 genera and four families have been reported in some type of freshwater. And some species of stingrays and sawfish and skates and dogfish and sandbar sharks will also come into estuaries. But the bull shark definitely stands out for its wide range and how long it will stay in freshwater and how far it will go into freshwater. Um, and of course, the salmon and the tilapia, you know, not related closely at all to bull sharks. Uh, they have, of course, this evolutionary adaptation to move from salt water to freshwater to spawn. So uh, not completely alone and unique, but just still mind bending for me, Chris. Mm-hmm. 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 It is. It is crazy. And again, you know, every time we talk sharks, these, they're in huge decline. Oh, um, so many sad. Of them, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're going to give you some statistics here in a little bit. Many endangered, many critically endangered. They're being overfished, over-persecuted, over-hunted. Uh, they are critical to keeping our oceans healthy. They're super important to the food webs. 
and we are losing the race to be honest we are losing them now uh, in some areas of the re- of the world they're being managed very carefully like in the United States so that's very good news but again you know some of the other other places on the planet they are being you know killed for shark fin soup we've covered this in previous shark episodes so being a top top not the top top but being up there the top of the pyramid as an oceanic predator bull sharks are very very important absolutely chris uh sharks especially a shark like the bull shark is going to directly or indirectly affect all the levels of the food web in an ocean so in order to have a healthy ocean, you need to have a healthy shark population. Uh, it's they're just critical. They keep the ocean's ecosystem in balance. And sharks also act as like an indicator species for oceans because the, the abundance of sharks is directly related to the health and abundance of thriving coral reefs, um, seagrass beds, coastal regions. So once again, healthy oceans have a healthy shark population, and unfortunately, we're seeing that decline. Yeah, absolutely. We absolutely are. Now, I promised we were going to be covering plastics last week's podcast, and I will next week, especially talk about microplastics, because I think the next species we cover, it's very relevant because it's a species we may eat. So we'll, we'll table that because when I was really looking into bull sharks again, and reading some of the headlines and some of the news headlines, they're very sensational how these man-killing bull sharks are found in rivers. And, oh, my God, close call with bull shark. Almost killed this man, even though the bull shark just looked at him. Like, they have this very fearsome, fearsome reputation. They have a reputation for being highly testosterone, like roid-raging sharks of the ocean, and and it's so far from the truth. So I wanted to update you on shark attack statistics. Uh, I do this every year, I guess, in July when we cover a shark. I like to bring this up and just kind of see where where we are. Now, I mean, the bull shark, since we've been keeping track uh, the last 130 years, roughly... Yeah, the bull shark does stack up there. I mean, they're not, you know, like when we covered the hammerhead, it was very rare. I think there was like three hammerhead attacks and it was because they were on a fishing line. And so it was a provoked attack. It was not unprovoked. So given that there are shark attacks, it does happen. There has been 121 total bull shark attacks since we started keeping data with 26 of them being fatal. All right. So it is one of the top three. And this is from our favorite Florida Museum of Natural History. Yes. I have to give them a big shout out because they are here in Gainesville. uh, And it's the International Shark Attack File at the Florida Museum of Natural History in Gainesville, Florida, which we frequent love regularly. And we're members of, of course, we have our membership there. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I love it. I, I do miss that museum. It was a fun little museum and some really awesome exhibits. So doing good stuff, Titanoboa, I'll never forget. <laughs> Discovered there, <laughs> right there in Gainesville, Florida. Yeah, so they keep the statistics. And yeah, so they say, okay, bull shark has earned its top stop. It's the number th- three most dangerous shark to humans. Now, a lot of that is because they are in these coastal waters. And they do have a lot of interaction with people or they're near people a lot. 
so obviously a lot of times it's mistaken for other prey and then the shark attacks. And, and, and that is typically what we see with great whites and tiger sharks. You know, it's, they're not really going for the person. They think it's a seal or something. In rivers, I will say, uh, the Florida Museum of Natural History just say, young bull sharks generally are not going to attack people. That's where you're going to find a lot in the rivers because a human beings too big for them. They, they wouldn't mistake a human being for something they would normally prey upon. So you don't see attacks in the river systems because the younger bull sharks are like, nah, you're too big for me, but I'm not going to take a bite out of you. All right. So for 2021, because we're, we're recording this in July of 2022, so the data for last year across the world, there were 137 total reported uh, shark attacks. Now, are there but more? But that doesn't mean deaths, right? No, 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 Angie. There's only, there was there was 11 out of the 137. Okay. So there was 11 deaths last year, which is a little bit above normal actually. Now of the 137, 73 were unprovoked, meaning the shark just came up and bit somebody, uh, 39 provoked. So that means they're either on fishing lines, caught up in nets, things like that. Uh, then there's things like boat bites and, uh, and they couldn't, you know, confirm other things. Now, does that capture every shark attack in the world? No, these are what's reported. I'm sure in some poorer regions of the world, there may be a few here and there that we don't hear about, but this this gives us a good idea compared to 26 people dying a year from a cow's just in the United States, right? So, Well, and Chris, the way I think of it for my own self is I'm in, if I ride horses, I cannot be worried about going in the, swimming in the ocean or a river or an estuary for that matter, right? I mean, there's a lot more things that I do on a daily basis that are statistically more likely to cause me injury uh, yes. than, than a shark bite, including yes. getting hit by lightning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yes. you know, I mean, that, but as you mentioned before, I think there's just something embedded in our, in our, our brain, even though humans are predators and we, kill so many millions mm-hmm. and millions of sharks a year sharks, yeah, compared to like yeah. you said the few fatal shark attacks that happen a year i mean what what are the statistics on shark deaths due to poaching and um overfishing and being caught up in fishing lines a year where are we at i'm gonna guess i think it's something around is it 10 million a year <laughs> yeah good good keep trying keep trying. Uh, 100 million yeah Ugh, they estimate yeah. about 100 million. 100 million sharks a year are, are, are harvested from the oceans. So, or just stripped of their fins. That's of, us killing yeah. them, right? Yeah. Yeah. 10 people on average about a year, nine to 10, nine, 11, 10. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a lot of fear. The numbers were way down in 2020 because of lockdowns, people throughout the world. What happened in 2021? Numbers came back to where they normally were. Uh, the U.S. was the number one uh, country in the world. And again, the United States is a massive country. Lots of coastline. Yeah, lots of coastline. 350 million people live there. Uh, a lot of people go to the beaches. A lot of people holiday. Uh, so 47 attacks in the USA last year, only one fatality. Australia, we love you. We love you, Australia. There was only 12 attacks, but three were fatal uh, because of pretty everything's, healthy. Everything's, yeah, tougher or bigger or yeah. harder or scarier in uh, Australia, right? 
No, I, I and I think what's going on there, Angie, in Australia and and Envoy, Envoy Call, we interviewed them, I think, two years ago. Yes, that's... They talked about the drum lining mm-hmm. and a lot of the stuff that they do to try to protect people actually maybe making the situation worse. Attracting. By bringing shark, yeah, attracting sharks closer to shore. Uh, so that's still a healthy b- debate going on in Australia. Uh, we had one here in New Zealand, like I said, uh, only three shark attacks total. One was fatal. Two in New Caledonia. Uh, which was was uh, crazy. Now the the shark attacks in the USA, since we have a large USA audience, Florida <laughs> leading the way there. Ange twenty eight. I'm still swimming. I'm not worried. <laughs> Six in Hawaii, three in California, one of which was fatal uh, near where I lived uh, growing up, and then um, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, and Maryland. So most people of all the 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 shark attacks, fifty one percent were surfing or board events, you know, out on the ocean, or and then forty percent were swimming. So that's most of of what, because again, looks like a seal. That's where a lot of these great whites come up and attack. So I did look at the total shark attacks overall, Angie, because I want to see where the bull shark stacked up. So great whites were were three hundred fifty four total attacks. Um, 57 of them fatal. This is again, since we've been keeping data, uh, tiger sharks came in at number two with 138 total attacks, 36 were fatal. And then bull sharks, 121, 26 are fatal. I mean, gray white attacks a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times they bite, they go, Oh, this is, this tastes terrible. Yeah. You taste like McDonald's or. No, the McDonald's tastes good. (laughs) You taste like tofu or something that a shark doesn't like. If it was McDonald's, you'd be gone. Oh, (laughs) I don't know. I think it depends Uh, on, yeah, probably the diet. Yeah. 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 But anyway, it's icky. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's not what they're going for. No, 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 no. So a lot of times. Especially if wetsuits are involved and surfboards and all of that. Yeah, styrofoam. So that that's that that's definitely uh, what goes on. They actually bite somebody, and they're like, "Oh, I don't want you," but the person dies because it's they're so massive. You know, it's such a big shark. So now, as far as bull sharks uh, go, uh, the last one in the states was 2010 uh, in Florida, where somebody was killed by a bull shark, and then 2008 in Australia. So those are just kind of the the statistics I looked up. But I mean, just you have a greater chance of dying from a box jellyfish. Almost 100 people a year die from box jellyfish each year than sharks. But we don't have this great fear. I do. I have a healthy respect for jellyfish. But, you know, we're not out there like, oh, my God, jellyfish are going to kill us. It's the sharks because of Jaws, you know, because of what happened back then, you know, making these movies. And and so I think we should celebrate how beautiful these animals are and respect them and realize, you know, every now and then it's just it's just rare. That's all I can say. It's very, 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 very rare uh, for shark attack, someone to be attacked by a shark and then die. It's ultra, ultra rare. All right, let's take a quick break before we jump into evolution. All right, welcome back. And I guess we'll just uh, run through evolution. We, we've done, again, sharks, very ancient species. We've done them uh, a few times before. But just, just to, to refresh everybody's memories, these are the cartilaginous fishes. So there's over a thousand species in that. And then the order is carchar 
which is the largest order of sharks. And there's about 270 species. And the other one that we like to cover sometimes, or we've covered before, laminiforms. Lamniforms, sorry, lamniforms. That's the big, remember that family? Of course, the beautiful great whites. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the car, the Karchar hiniforms mm-hmm. is most of the others, the tigers, the hammerheads, the bull sharks. Now, the bull sharks do belong to the, the requiem sharks. So the Karchar hinidae, mm-hmm. which again is the tiger shark that we've covered, and the bull shark. Now, the genus is Carcharhinus, 35 species. And everything looks pretty normal up to this point, Angie, when I'm doing this and I'm doing my research. And then I look at the list of these Carcharhinus genera, and I just am like, what? Mouth hits the ground, heart drops. 35 species, only six are least concerned. So 29 of the 35 species in this genus of sharks are endangered, heading towards extinction. Six critically endangered. This is why we care. Besides the fact that healthy oceans need healthy shark mm-hmm. populations. But yes, this it's not happening. I mean, yeah. there's so many sharks, like you said, in this genus that are in big, big trouble. And the, uh, and the bull shark's not out of the woods. They're near threatened. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah. Yeah. They're vulnerable for extinction. They're they're heading. Their trajectory is heading down. Mm-hmm. So if we don't do anything, if we keep doing what we're doing with no change, these animals will go extinct. You know, they're just when their populations plummet like this, and we lose reefs collapse, uh, corals are collapsing. You know, whole ecosystems are breaking down. These animals go away, and it's going to be millions of what tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, before anything can regenerate. So it is sad. Uh, the Borneo shark is one of the critically endangered. The Pacific smalltail shark, Pondicherry shark, uh, near me here in Indonesia and South Southern Asia. The Oceanic white tip shark which is pretty much found throughout the world. Well, not many of them left. The lost shark and the small tail shark. So those are the ones that are critically endangered. And what breaks my heart is, I mean, sharks, you know, the mantis shrimp beats them out a little bit, (laughs) which we just covered, you know, 500 million years. But sharks been dating, they go back 450 million. Yeah, older than dinosaurs, right? Yeah, before we had trees. I mean, that's crazy right think about that yes that's why we should care there's so many reasons to care about sharks oh my gosh yeah sharks were around before there were even trees you know <laughs> it's you know the 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 carboniferous period about 360 million years ago was the golden age where they just dominated it was sharks 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 and you know they they just around forever and now the the what makes this even more astounding is the modern groups of sharks, you know, these carcharhiniforms and the laminiforms and all the others emerged about 200 million years ago. They haven't changed a lot. They've survived some mass extinctions. Uh, we're able to, you know, the, the, the ones in the deep oceans and... And just to kind of get through some more of this, Angie, because we've covered a lot of this before, you know, it's like we, we the fossil record with sharks, a lot of it's their teeth because they're made from cartilage and that doesn't preserve well uh, with fossilization. Yes, we actually go shark teeth hunting here in Gainesville in, this, in the stream beds and find little 
tiny shark teeth. It's so fun. Yeah, the boys just this last week went uh, not shark teeth hunting, but fossil hunting in a river here in New Zealand. And I've got some some stuff off to show you, like fossilized ferns. And it's awesome. really amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool stuff. So get outdoors with your kids. But yeah, I mean, they, they've been around a long time. I mean, we know that with sharks. And the bull sharks, no exception. I mean, their family's been around for millions and millions of years. And they haven't had to adapt much because they they are so effective out in the oceans. Now, some interesting statistics on bull sharks. Generally in the wild, they think they live anywhere from 12 to 15 years, 30 years under human care, which I thought was interesting because typically you don't see bull sharks. And so I did a little digging uh, in Australia. There's there's somewhere on the Gold Coast, the Sydney Zoo, a couple of the places have bull sharks. The Oklahoma Aquarium right, has yeah. bull sharks. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So you can see them in some aquariums. So go out and check them out. I mean, they're, they're amazing. And they can swim up to 25 miles per hour or 40 kilometers per hour, which is pretty fast. Pretty fast. And I think the one statistic besides the freshwater, which we're about to get to, was this bite force. Like what? What is it with this? Their bite force. They're they're one of the. They have one of the strongest bite force in the world. Is that what you were telling me earlier? Oh, absolutely, Chris. This fact blew me away. Uh, weight for weight, bull sharks have the highest bite force among all the investigated cartilaginous fishes. So, of course, there's a great white, which is very strong. But when we talk about weight for weight the bite force of the bull shark is just incredible. So to give you some numbers, in 2012, scientists looked at the bite strengths of 13 different sharks and shark-like fish and basically found that an adult bull shark uh, will close its jaws with just under 6,000 newtons of force at the back and 2,000 in the front. And to to help you relay that to your own self, uh, humans, when we bite down, the maximum force we can bite with is 900 to 1300 newtons. So uh, the bull sharks can be like six times uh, more force. Uh, So yeah, I mean, weight for weight that uh, the bull shark is, has a very, very strong bite. And although researchers don't know exactly why they have such this powerful bite, uh, why it's necessary, they think that because they've evolved to have just this incredible diet, which we'll talk about nutrition of you know, opportunistic feeders, like eat so much stuff, but they will eat oysters, they will eat uh, turtles, they will eat anything with scales, shells, uh, thick skin. So having this, uh, this incredible bite force uh, with bull shark is probably helpful helping them be able to eat anything they want for the most part. Yeah. I mean, they, they're top 10 in the world. Just, just, you know, you're not looking for pound for pound, pound for pound for any fish that are the strongest. Right. But, Correct. you know, great whites, just, just in raw data. Right. Raw numbers. Bit, yeah. Like double that. Uh, I have PSI, uh, you know, hippos, 1800 PSI, jaguars, 1500 PSI. Yeah. I mean, hippo is going to be the mammal that has uh, yeah. the incredible uh, bite force. Well, there's a lot of them, but the hippo's way, yeah. way up there. And that's why I love the video of the hippo versus the bull shark, shark and the St. Yes. Lucia estuary along the eastern <laughs> coast of Africa. So the hippos looked a little freaked out. I'll give them that. You look at that. Normally they weren't because I watched a video the other day of hippos chasing some male lions out of the river. 
they were looked very confident. They didn't look so confident with that full shirt. Well, it was incredible. I was, I mean, first of all, I'm like, why would they ever see each other? And that just kind of brought me back to the fact that these bull sharks are going into the brackish estuaries and going up into uh, freshwater systems in Africa. And they're bumping into hippos, which, which of course spend a lot of time in uh, the water in the riverways in Africa. And so, yeah, there's this video. I mean, I, gosh, I couldn't imagine being on uh, the one that recorded that, but you're, the hippos are just doing their thing, standing or floating in the water. And you see the shark fin, like a big shark fin coming right up to them. And it's funny because it uh, basically, it looks like the bull shark hits the hippo and the hippo, I mean, freaks out and more in a like surprise way of like, yeah, yeah. and I don't, it, you can't really even tell if the, if there was a bite involved or not, but yeah. then the hippo with the strongest bite force, much stronger than the uh, bull shark turns around and yeah, the shark went the other way. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sharks I think come it, out. <laughs> in a typical cage match, it's going to be the hippo wins every time. Yeah. But yeah. there are reports of bull sharks preying on young hippos once in a yeah, while. Yeah, there you go. That's what I would think. Yep. Uh, but what happens is, is uh, hippos, which we've covered, um, gosh, years ago when we did them, and John and I, my husband and I, had like a hippo vocalization uh, yeah, competition. Yep. I can't remember who won. But anyways. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I know. We'll have to do it again. <laughs> we love it. Uh, but hippos are herbivores. They eat a lot of grass. They poop a lot. They poop in the water, which attracts a lot of fish feed off of uh, particles in their feces. And then so all the sharks are attracted to the fish in these uh, in these riverways. And so they're not really going after hippos. Uh, they just happen to be attracted to the fish that are by the hippos. But they, once again, once in a while, if it's a baby hippo, they would maybe, um, they would yeah, maybe try to do it. that. How about this, Chris? Hippo versus crocodile. I was gonna, I was gonna go there next because I hope those bull sharks don't run into the Nile crocodile because they, even the salt water, salt water, but the Nile crocodile is the king with five thousand psi or what seventeen thousand newtons bite force, like insane. So a bull shark would be smart to avoid them. Well, and you picked very well in this cage match because in Australia, an eighteen foot saltwater crocodile named Brutus was observed eating a small bull shark. I remember that. I think mm -hmm. I remember the, the photos, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. I'll have to look that up. I'll write that down. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Salties and Niles. It's, we've covered the salties. I think we got to cover Niles soon. Uh, you know, the Nile Crocs. Uh, just, just fascinating, fascinating creatures. AJ, I think this is a good point to segue into fresh water. Because that is the gist. That's a lot of what we talked about. We've 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 talked a lot about this where we found them. Uh, I've got a couple surprises here, uh, but the the new words for me were diadromous, right? And then what was the other one? Yuri hailing fish. Yeah, Chris. So diadromous basically means swimming between fresh and salt water with ease, with no problems. In Yuri hailing. Sorry to all of our ichthyologists out there. I don't know if I'm saying that right. That's a fish that's able to adapt to a wide range of salinity in the water. And the bull shark is one of the few cartilaginous fishes that can hang out in these freshwater ecosystems. And do it and do it. Okay. So before we get to the how, because mm -hmm. you're itching, I see you jumping up and down, the how. Let me tee this up for you. Literally. 
because teeing up means what? Freaking a swing golf balls, right? Mm-hmm. So how long can a bull shark stay in fresh water has been tested. Now, you mentioned earlier Lake Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Right. They actually thought it was like a uh, subspecies or some yeah. evolutionary flooding, and then they got stuck there, and then they stayed. But through uh, DNA and more genealogy testing, they have found that, no, they're actually bull sharks that come up through the riverway systems and then land in Lake Nicaragua. And then, as you mentioned, after a certain amount of time, probably leave. Yeah, they do. And I think a lot of it is what's keeping them from staying there is just prey. Sure. It's they're too big. There's not enough prey. They're hungry. So they need to go somewhere else. Now, teeing this up, that was the longest there was about four years that they saw bull sharks. Six, and, and, and here you go, quote unquote, man-eating bull sharks. This was from a, a news report. Live in the lake in the center of a golf course in Carbrook, Queensland, Australia. <laughs> so there are six quote unquote man eaters that have never eaten a man uh, living in this lake at this golf course. And now they become somewhat famous. And this is going on six, seven years now. And uh, the, the, they say the lake has plenty of fish in there for them to hunt, but they do. Uh, feed them some meat and stuff. So I think they're taking care of them, but they've been landlocked. So these bull sharks have been living on a lake, on a golf course in Australia for many, many, many years. How did they get there? Well, oh, oh, how they got there. Yeah, that's a good point. So there was a monsoon, right? Because, or cyclone, because they're not hurricanes here. They're the other way. Uh, Flooded. And these bull sharks were got migrated in there. And then when the, the waters receded, they got landlocked. And they've been stuck in there since. So you can go and they have like special events every year uh, at this golf course. So it's made them pretty, pretty popular and famous. So any of our Aussie friends can reach out to us. I'll ask Chantel if she knows about it. Uh, let us know about the, the, the bull sharks on your golf course. But... That gets to your how, Angie. How do they do this? How can they live in fresh water? Well, Chris, I have about six to eight slides on how they do it. So I'm <laughs> right. very excited to dork out about yeah. osmolarity and hypotonic and hypertonic. Mm-hmm. But uh, I first want to talk about why. That's You and I are trained mammal physiologists and love the dorky science cell, all of that. But the more I do this podcast, my undergrad roots, my zoology roots of evolutionary biology of like, well, why? There are very few of these didermose fish that basically love to go between salt and fresh water with ease. So why? And of course, we don't know the answer. And that's why I love (laughs) evolutionary biology, because there's just, there's hypothesis and theories that are thrown out there um, due to some of the evidence. And the truth of the matter is we we don't know, but uh, scientists have speculated that it probably has a lot to do with food and resources, like you mentioned a little bit in Lake, the Lake Nicaragua example. Somewhere down the evolutionary tree, there was co- enough competition where bull sharks were just like, you know what? We're in the ocean. There seems to be a lot of competition. We're just going to head upstream where there's more fish. And that provides us with another source of food. 
So there, it might have been competition food-based. But also, when they got to these estuaries, these brackish waters, somehow, somewhere down the evolutionary line, they decided to start having their offspring, the females, would give birth to their pups, and the pups hang out in these estuaries, which don't have many sharks or other huge predators in them. And so that was also an evolutionary trick or strategy to help your young survive because they're not out in the depths of the ocean fighting off all of the other predators, right? So which came first, the wanting to get more food or the wanting to protect your offspring? Who knows, right? I would probably never know. But those are some of the main theories as to why they would evolve this because it wasn't an, it's not an easy change to go from salt water to fresh water but the payoff must have been big enough and it obviously was because there's bull sharks are still with us and, and hopefully they'll stay with us for my lifetime and from here out on to history because we need to take care of them because there had to be a lot of physiological changes during their evolution in order to support this uh freshwater adaptation right and basically the how they do it, how the bull sharks go from freshwater to saltwater and how they can tolerate freshwater is all rooted in salt retention within their bodies. And this process is called osmoregulation. And it basically allows them to adjust the water and salt within their bodies. And a little bit more rigorous scientific definition, osmoregulation it's basically the maintenance of constant osmotic pressure in the fluids of an organism by moving water and salt concentrations around. And all organisms, depending on how they evolved and where they live and what their needs are, have to maintain a certain salt, specific salt to water ratio inside their bodies and in their cells, in their blood, and then of course in their cells. So for fish that live in the ocean, for example, if they absorb too much of that salty water, the cells within inside their body can get dehydrated and die. But if they take in too much fresh water or the water's not salty enough, then their cells get bloated and expand and can actually burst. That's what I heard what happens to great whites in fresh water. <laughs> so, <laughs> those things cannot go upriver, so don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. Exactly, Chris. That's why it's so unique that bull sharks don't explode when they when they go up the river. And just to expand on osmoregulation a little bit further and get in a little dork out a little bit about the chemistry because, well, I love it. Uh, when you think about cells within an animal's body, and then of course the fluid around the cells, in general, water is always going to try to move into an area where there's a high solute concentration or a lot of salt. So bodily systems are always trying to be what is known as isotonic. So basically equal both in water and solute concentration. But there's times where there's more salt either outside of the cell and then the water from inside the cell is going to basically leave and rush towards that and the cell is going to get dehydrated or vice versa. If uh, the cell is super salty, um, a lot of the water is going to rush into the cell to try to dilute it down. And that's when you get this, this great white 
exploding. (laughs) And so it's uh, basically isotonic versus hypertonic and hypotonic uh, and the different solutions. But Chris, so what the bull shark is doing is all of this behind scenes to make sure that its bodily fluids are not either too salty or too diluted. And so the bull shark has several physiological processes with inside their organs to help maintain an appropriate salt water balance or osmoregulation. And there's four ways in which a bull shark does this. First of all, their kidneys. Kidneys are huge in osmoregulation. And what a kidney does is will recycle the salt within the shark's bodies. So more or less, if the bull shark is spending time in the ocean in salt water, they're going to urinate out more salt to get rid of it. And vice versa, when the bull shark's spending time in the Mississippi or the Amazon or whatever fresh water they're in, they are going to keep more salt in their bodies and urinate out more fresh water. And the kidney is just a really great osmoregulator through all these hormone cascades to understand what it needs to do when it needs to do it, which is a super, super fascinating pathways that I haven't studied in years. So that's a different podcast for a different day. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second organ that really helps uh, bull sharks regulate their salt water um, balance is the liver. And this one threw me out off a little bit because I, I think of liver and like salt balance and it didn't really make sense to me. But after a little bit of digging, it's, it's not really regulating salt so much. It's actually regulating the amount of urea produced. And so I think tend to think of osmolarity as salt regulation, but there's also other molecules, um, including uh, potassium, uh, glucose, urea, and other anions that help maintain this uh, basically salt water solute ratio. And so a study that I found uh, to help explain this to me was called Heptic Urea Biosynthesis in the Urihaline Elasmo Branch Bull Shark. And... <laughs> Yes, That's I read it. Thank you. It's a deep read, yes. Yes. Thank you, Journal of Experimental uh-huh. Zoology from 2005. Uh-huh. I love you and all your authors from Australia, of course. And what they found is that liver urea biosynthesis was higher by 2.7 fold in salt water than in fresh water. So they really were able to be the first ones to quantify the fact that this liver urea production is changing, helping osmoregulate uh, the bull shark when they're in salt water versus when they're in fresh water. So when they're in salt water, high urea production, and when they're in fresh water, lower urea production. And then the other two body parts that are involved with a bull shark uh, salt regulation are going to be the gills. Um, researchers think that the gills of bull sharks are likely to be involved in the uptake of sodium and chloride from the surrounding fresh water when they need more in their bodies. And they also have a rectal gland uh, near their tail uh, that also help aid in salt retention. This rectal gland will basically function to excrete excess salts when needed. um, And then, of course, decrease it if they don't, if they need to keep more in their bodies. So I learned all about a rectal salt excretion gland and that I didn't know existed. So pretty cool. I mean, these bull sharks have perfected it over hundreds of thousands of millions of years in order to be able to swim up river and 
hang out or live live on a golf course in a freshwater lake. Yes. <laughs> and have yes. and have and like survive. a a golf tournament named after them. So yeah, uh, yep, just. Yep. Just so fascinating. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm in love with the bull shark. I'm in love with their physiology. It's just fascinating. Yeah, no, it, it, it is fascinating. And, and the physiology on how they do it and regulate, it, it's, it's amazing. Now, there are a few other surprisingly freshwater sharks, sharks that can do this, but critically endangered, the Ganges shark I've mentioned, the Northern River shark, which is Papua New Guinea in Australia. That's critically endangered. There's only about 250 of them left. The spear tooth shark, the pond cherry shark. That one was so rare. They thought that it was extinct, but they did find one in the Sri Lankan fish market in 2019. So may not be quite extinct. The Greenland shark can survive in waters that are brackish or a lot of freshwater off glaciers. And that is a shark I wanted to cover in this this month, but bull shark won out. We will cover the Greenland shark at some point because that's one of the oldest living species known to man. But fascinating stuff on the freshwater that bull sharks <laughs> throughout the world. Yeah, their physiology. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mentioned it very very early on. New Zealand, they're not normally here, but again with climate change, who knows if that will change because we're starting to see tropical fish off our coast. But in the Fanganui River, uh, many years ago, they spotted a shark about eight, kilometer, eight kilometers inland. So we didn't f- fully identify it, but it could have been a bull shark in New Zealand in my rivers. I'm like, no, <laughs> it's, it's, stay cold, stay cold. All right. Uh, before we jump into another behaviors, I think it's a good time to, to take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back, Angie. So Leading into behavior, diet, I mean, you said they're opportunistic. You know, bull sharks, I think from a young age, they eat different things as they get older, right? Like it's just, it's, it's a whole menu of different items out in the ocean, birds, fish, like you said, mollusks and Turtles, terrestrial yeah. mammals, dolphins, other other bull sharks, <laughs> you know, yeah, other know. sharks. Uh, so yeah, they're not, they're not picky, nuts. Uh, and yes, their does their diet does evolve as they grow and uh, as they change, depending on what's around, uh, which is probably one of the reasons why they've been so successful, and even why they went into the estuaries to begin with, right? To look for more sources of food. You just got to love the bull shark as an opportunistic um, as an opportunistic feeder. And as far as their hunting strategy goes, they have like two different techniques. Um, the one is often called the bump and bite technique where uh, they will basically first initially contact the prey and like bump it with their head and then go on to bite them from there. Uh, if, especially if the, if the prey is unable to flee because either they were stunned or, sh- or shocked or didn't know what hit them. The other type of hunting is basically just the normal, um, you know, quick attack. And the bull shark is a solitary hunter and they typically eat about 3% of their body weight a day. So, um, yeah, big, big, big fish and top of the food chain. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, uh, the saltwater croc, uh, was eating some bull shark. Now crocs have seen, uh, eating bull sharks, other larger, the great whites, the tiger sharks, other built bull sharks, but you know, humans are their main probably uh, predator that, that kills them, but still top of the food chain. Right. So so what are some other behavior? We've covered quite a bit as far as the freshwater stuff. So so what are some of the other things they might do? 
Well, Chris, bull sharks actually have a really good sense of hearing. Uh, they can detect sounds between 400 and 600 hertz, but um, they can also potentially hear frequencies between 100 and 1500 hertz. And so with this, it can help sharks detect prey from 20 feet, six meters away. And their sense of smell has not been quantified in the bull shark, but researchers think it's pretty strong as seen in other species of shark, uh, that their olfactory system is just really important for some of their hunting techniques and for being able to identify pheromones within the water and finding a mate. So yes, it's a great sense of smell. And then of course, uh, all sharks have these special electroreceptor organs. It's one of their sixth sense. Chris and I have described it before in other podcasts, mm -hmm. but Sharks have these small black spots near their mouth um, and their eyes and their nose. And these little spots or dots are, are called the ampullae of Lorenzini. And what this is, is a special cluster of cells that act as electroreceptor uh, organs or tissues that help a shark be able to sense electromagnetic fields and uh, changes in temperature within the ocean which is another way to detect prey, to help them migrate. So they just have this whole other world going on that is not pretty, it's pretty much not fathomable to us human beings. Right. Cause we just, yeah. I mean, I wish I could like be spun in a circle and be like, Oh, this way is North or, mm. <laughs> or spun in a circle and be like, Oh, I can tell that John is coming around the corner, even though I can't hear him or see him. Right. <laughs> Like that's what's it's happening. It's like last week's mantis shrimp. There's like these animals see, hear, feel. They just oh, they're. It's fascinating. I mean, could you? I mean, yeah. could you imagine just being able to sense like, okay, I mean, it'd be great with my kids. Like, oh, they're getting out of bed again. I better turn off this this Netflix show that they shouldn't be watching, you know. But instead, they walk in. I'm like, oh, oh, hold on. What do you need? So it's it's just it's like a superpower, and it's. Honestly, we should need a shark expert on here that studies this this uh, organ, this ampullae Lorenzini, to help blow our minds about this superpower because it's just it's just incredible. And that in general, most sharks, uh, their rel their brain size relative to their size is similar to some birds and mammals. So pound for pound again, uh, like as we saw with bite force. And so when you think about it, most species of shark migrate seasonally to where's their, where there's food or the bull shark up a river, uh, 2000 miles. And so, and, and in greater distances with white sharks and other sharks like that. But I mean, they have to, to know this journey and basically remember seasonal feeding places like where turtles breed or where, uh, certain fish spawn or, and, and they're able to, to do it year after year and find these certain locations and remember where they are. And so, Scientists are also observing that sharks have great ability to learn and adapt, good memory retention to, like I said, remember some of these feeding places and find them. And across the board, researchers are just like, we haven't even scratched the surface. You know, we, that's, we haven't even really looked that much into shark intelligence. Uh, but what they have looked into and really cool data starting to come out of this lab in North Carolina is... Um, basically looking at shark brain, just the anatomy uh, and the morphology of different species of sharks in their brain. And what the researchers are doing are, are basically comparing the different regions and the different sizes of certain parts of the brain in different species. 
And what they're seeing is that different regions of shark's brain, depending on what species they are, have different areas enlarged. So some species of shark have a really enlarged visual part of their brain. And these are ones that probably need to see in more shallow waters, right? Like the bull shark. Whereas deeper diving um, sharks, that area of their brain is not as big and they may focus on the olfactory region of their brain being huge. And for example, like tiger sharks have a huge olfactory bulb, which of course is involved with the sense of smell. It includes 30% of their brain mass, which just is crazy, right? Like we know they have good, you know, they can smell a drop of blood in the water, whatever this, in a pool of water, whatever that statistic is. But it does, it still doesn't make sense for it to be like 30% of their brain. And what the new data is showing out of this lab in North Carolina is that this, this, Species of sharks that migrate the furthest, tiger shark is a good example of that, have larger olfactory bulbs compared to ones that migrate less, like the bull shark. And so researchers are thinking, and of course they haven't proved this experimentally, but I love, I love the concept, that the large olfactory bulb might be a really key player in helping them migrate and learn and remember through olfactory cues and pheromones in getting from point A to point B thousands and thousands of miles away. And, and then of course, also to finding a mate in these, in these waters. And I think what they're seeing, the complexity in their brains in different regions is really exciting. And we just got to take care of our sharks in our oceans so we can keep learning more about them. We do, we do, and it's fascinating the, the 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 things we're learning, you know. And it goes back to your interview with, with Chris Fisher, O Search. Uh, oh, I love that. that. That was a I good know, one. But, but the work that they're doing, you know, sure. and mm-hmm. the genetic studies and going out on their boats, and you know, again, that's why God, I'd love to give them more money to support them. You know, maybe we should get an update from them soon. Oh, I would love to interview Chris Fisher again. Yeah, yes. it's so important because these these populations are crashing and our oceans, like the, again, this month, that's why every July we just focus on the ocean. And that's that has been our, our thing for the last three, four years. And we'll continue to do that, even though we'll sprinkle oceanic species here and there throughout the year. It's just so critical what's going on because it makes up most of our planet. So learning about this stuff with, with sharks is fascinating. And like to lead you into reproduction, Angie, one of the, the myths that we, we opened up with was bull sharks are, have this aggressive behavior. And like I said, they're, they're jacked up on testosterone because a study did come out and it suggested a male bull shark had 358 nanograms per milliliter of testosterone in their blood, which is just off the charts. So to give you a comparison, a bull elephant, you know, Big. a normal bull elephant, two nanograms per milliliter, that's normal. In musk, where I've had a bull elephant charge me in, in under human care, but in musk. I have in Africa. Oh, yeah. Uh, 64 Zambia. nanograms per deciliter. So oh. they're, they're, that's testosterone really raw, you know, really hyped up. So 358 people are like, oh my God, that's off the charts. Like. That's why bull sharks are so scary and so aggressive. 
Well, as we know, scientists, one study does not make a truth. That's why we do multiple studies. Exactly. You know, you and I are very skeptical on a lot of stuff because that's how we're trained and we should be. But when we see good evidence, you know, if somebody followed up and found that in a bull shark, followed up on that in a bull shark, independent researchers, you go, okay, maybe it's true. Well, this one, another study went, measured bull sharks over a long time found they on average have about two nanograms per deciliter, much like bull elephants. These are male bull sharks, by the way. And then during the breeding season, spiked maybe as high as 20 nanograms per milliliter. So this one sample on this one male bull shark was probably tainted. Uh, Something went wrong with their assay. Uh, Something was off. That is not true. You know, that myth is busted. They are not these animals out there high on testosterone trying to eat everything in sight. So they're, they're just like normal male animals, you know, uh, levels and things like that. So there's a myth busted leading into reproduction. You also opened up with like gestation that would blow us away. So, so what are some of the things there? Oh, Chris, there's so many about the bull shark and the reproduction. I mean, first of all, bull sharks bear live young. So they're viviparous. And what this means in the bull shark is that basically the female will sustain her young uh, anywhere from one to 13 pups, I believe, per litter through a yolk sac placenta. With bull sharks, they typically are going to breed during the late summer or early autumn, typically in fresh water, sometimes brackish areas, the mouth of a river. And researchers don't know a ton about their courtship or pre-breeding behaviors, uh, but it is thought that what will happen is that when a female is an estrus and is ready to mate, um, the male can detect this probably through pheromones or the olfactory, and he'll come up to the female and place a snout uh, below her vent. And the male will sometimes probably bite the female under the tail so she can roll over and they can copulate. Uh Shark breeding can be a little bit aggressive. Um, Males will do have a tendency to bite. And so females, a a well-bred female will often have like mating scars. Um, Whereas males typically don't have, they might have some scratches or a few things, but they're pretty much unmarked, right? But other than that, there's not a ton of research on their actual courtship and breeding behaviors. And um, so we need to do some more work on that. But When a female does become pregnant uh, with the one to 13 pups, uh, her gestation period is 10 to 11 months. Like a horse. Yeah. I mean, a horse is like 11, 11 and a half months, but yeah, I Um, mean, longer than us humans. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's long. Yep. And of course, Chris, these embryos grow slowly and then they get bigger and bigger. And at birth during this like live birth, um, the pups can be anywhere from one and a half to two and a half feet long or 50 yeah. to 75 centimeters. Yeah, that's big. That's big. That's a big, big that's baby. That's huge. <laughs> I mean, that's a, a big baby. That's like a, I mean, that's like a whopper of a fish in general. Yeah. And yeah. They have maybe 13 of them is obviously sometimes more often less, but still. Uh, and the shark pups are going to be born tail first. And as I previously mentioned, the female will give birth in um, the uh, the mouths of rivers, the estuaries, uh, basically low salinity areas. 
uh, which are known as like nursery habitats. And we're still learning about more of those and how to protect them and stuff like that. Uh, there's really no parental investment uh, and care in them, except for that they do, they have evolved over time, all these great physiological measures to deal with the lack of salt in freshwater to basically have their pups there. So I would say that's actually a lot of parental care, <laughs> but then yeah, yeah. once the, once the shark, once the pups are born, then you know, the parents don't actually do anything after that. Um, but the pups have opportunities to stay in this uh, low salt, uh, safe riverbed area to basically stay away from predators. And, and they'll do that for a while. Um, and it, as they grow and get bigger, they can tolerate more salt and then they'll go out into the ocean after that. Now, with this big investment of birthing two and a half feet long um, shark pups, uh, the bull shark is typically going to only give birth every other year with that long gestation period, right? So her turnover is not very great when we're talking about rebounding numbers. And then also when we're talking about generation inter interval, this statistic blew my mind. The growth rate maturity in these young bull sharks is pretty fast, um, but then it decreases as the shark gets older. And because of this, female bull sharks don't reach sexual maturity or reproductive maturity until they are around 15 to 18 years old. Okay. It's only really living that long, so right. they don't and reproduce very much. Yeah, Correct. And males... Um, don't reach sexual maturity until they're about 14 to 15 years old. So when we talk about their numbers being low, survival low. Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean that's why they have to, trouble, yeah. right. They, you know, they have to come out as a shark pup and survive all the dangers of then going out in the ocean, you know, eventually going out of the open ocean, survive for 14, 15, 16 years doing whatever it is they do to finally then be big enough to then breed? Probably just a few survive a past. I mean, if they can live 30 under human care, so they could probably live a little bit longer in the wild. But I think with all the pressure, they just don't. Right. You know? like Especially coastal fishing and coastal waters are very dangerous. Oh, yeah. You know, op for, for a shark, open, open water, you know, they do much better. Uh, they're less uh, poached or, or fished or anything like that. But coastal waters, pfft. Boats and trash and all the stuff that's going into the into the oceans. Well, there's yeah, just so many tough. things against them with commercial fishing and exactly pollution and poaching and so I mean they have they have to get to a certain age to be able to reproduce them to even have one litter, let alone a couple of them. So that just that was really striking to me, and I think it's something we have to to really pay a close eye on. Uh, with these guys because it's, uh, I mean, they, we have to keep them alive long enough to be able to reproduce, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are vulnerable or near threatened, you know, with extinction. As we said, you know, shark populations definitely plummeting around the planet. I mean, I my tip of the week was just don't eat shark, uh, you know, but I looked it up and NOAA, who's the organization of the United States that, that you know, science-based uh, management of fisheries said, Sharks caught in the U.S. are sustainable food choices. I just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a personal choice for me. I used to, I've had shark before. Uh, like I said, my whole family, many times I've said this, my family were fishermen, fisherwomen, you know, my, my, my mom's side of my family, tuna fishermen, deep roots in my family. 
And I used to eat shark all the time. Not anymore. I just, I just feel like we, we just need to leave them alone for a while. Even if they're sustainable, we need them to grow and grow unhampered because there is a lot of pressure in the oceans with them. Right. And, I mean, you know. we are taking far too many sharks out of the ocean a year for crazy reasons. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for, the finning just is, oh, yeah. it's so disgusting. Yeah. 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 So we got it. We, we definitely need to explore more of that in this podcast soon. Yeah. All right. So that leads me into one of the organizations that you covered this week because there are so many. We've already mentioned O-Search. You know, again, an awesome, amazing uh, podcast. I'll close out with uh, some other shark episodes. But who would you support this week? Well, Chris, this week we're turning our attention to minorities in shark sciences, MISS. And they can be found at www.misse.com. E-L-A-S-M-O.org. So MissElasmo.org. Uh, of course, they can be found on all the different social media channels as well. I'm super excited to highlight Miss. We have a great interview coming up with um, Carly Jackson, who is one of the co-founders of Miss. So the organization Miss provides a community and funding opportunities for gender minorities of color who wish to enter the field of shark sciences. I just love the mission at MISS to promote diversity and inclusion in shark sciences um, and basically encourage gender minorities of color to push through a lot of barriers of exclusion to contribute to the marine sciences. And they do it in so many different ways and they have a lot of great programs going on. So I definitely encourage all of our listeners out there that want to learn more about sharks and more about uh, brilliant black women that are shark researchers that are giving back to their community to try to get more uh, gender minorities of color involved in the shark sciences, like show your support, follow them on Instagram, on Facebook and other social media channels, check out www.missalasmo.org. And you can also find them on our show notes. And please do yourself a favor and check out the interview next week with Carly Jackson from Minorities and Shark Sciences. It's an amazing interview. Please listen to it. It's uh, it gives me a lot of hope listening to her talk. And you know, it's it's not just social justice. It's it's engaging in research, getting uh, a group really excited about sharks, and it's very very important to what they're doing. So I love that we're supporting them and that we're able to to help. Uh, you know, talk about them. Now, if you're interested in sharks, if you made it this long, obviously you are, and if you haven't heard some of our other episodes, I'm going to start from the earliest and get to the latest because we've covered quite a few sharks so far. Episode 23, whale shark. Episode 111, great white sharks. Episode 162, tiger sharks. Episode 235, great hammerhead shark. Episode 268, Goblin sharks. Oh yeah, <laughs> that was a, good... that was a fun one. <laughs> yeah. And then our interviews. We we definitely have love for sharks in this podcast. Uh, episode one twelve. That is with Chris Fisher, the founder of O Search, which was still one of our our just favorites. I mean, all of our guests are just so amazing. Like you just had Carly on, but that one is I know special to you. Uh, episode 163, we did Envoy Cole, the filmmakers who were talking about Australia's shark control program and how really it, it, it's very detrimental to shark, shark conservation. Uh, very interesting uh, on that one. And then episode 236, you had Dr. David Schiffman on shark conservation. So 
yeah, we, we definitely are giving sharks a voice and, uh, you know, anybody working in there, I would just say, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Please share this episode uh, on social media, your other platforms. People need to do away with the fear of sharks. I still have it when I'm out on the ocean, you know, out in the waves, uh, I'm going to go get recertified for diving. I do get a little nervous. I'm like, oh, but then I remember, okay, it's just because of popular culture that sharks really, you know, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're, they're incredibly important to our oceans and they're not going to eat me knock on wood but uh yeah you don't, great episode no Angie. offense i love you buddy but you don't taste that good <laughs> <laughs> no i don't i don't nor do i <laughs> and uh yeah, yeah they're definitely yeah. they're more afraid of you than you are of them you know yeah, i really do believe that all right take care thank you everyone listen learn share join the movement at allcreaturespod.com